Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have William Perry with us to discuss the difficulty, if not impossibility, of a convicted felon to find meaningful employment in Ohio. Welcome, William. Thank you for having me. Jack, I was reading an article in the Dispatch a couple of days ago that said that Ohio's unemployment rate hit a pre-pandemic low in January amid worker shortages. It's hard to imagine that there's somebody out there that can't find a job in this uh, economy right now. Oh, yeah. We've got more openings than we have uh, people to fill them. And I'm not hearing anybody able to come up with an answer as to how you fix the problem. But there are some people that are looking for jobs, and one of those people are with us today. Uh, William, we talk about meaningful employment in Ohio. Uh, why don't we start there? What, what did that mean to you when you got out of prison? What were you looking for? Well, when I originally got out of prison, I needed a, a block to start on. And I took, you know, I took a job that, um, I took a job that nearly broke my back and um, offered no insurance, no um, no stability moving forward. Um, during that time, I also was continuing to educate myself, and upon receiving that education, I decided that I would move into the career that I had chosen. I found, at that point, many hurdles and roadblocks that I did not anticipate. I didn't understand that I would actually be allowed to get this education, however, not be allowed to go into that field. How prepared were you when you were released uh, to enter um, the workforce? Did you have some training uh, in prison? Was there some um, uh, education or courses offered to you at that time? Yeah, so I began my education in prison. Sinclair Community College partners with a lot of different prisons and when you get near the end of your term you're allowed to start taking courses granted that you have good behavior. Um, I did begin taking those courses. I was able to get a chemical dependency counseling certificate. I was also able to get a social service certificate um, and I was trained. I did a one-year clerkship uh, in reentry skills. So then um, you're released uh, into the world again, and um, tell us what you found out as far as um, who'd you go to and what were they saying about you? Well, I put my resume together as I was taught to, um, and I started shopping it around to all the different social services and you know the entities, nonprofit entities um, around the Columbus and uh, greater area. And... I found that there is a huge need within the social field. There is a wide gap and almost, I got callbacks, I would say 75% of the time on my resume. Um, 
I would get interviews and there were a lot of companies that were eager to hire me. Um, the thing is, is that as I was taught is the right thing to do, I disclose my felony at the job interview. I'm upfront with it, I address it, and I try to get out in front of that question because that's usually the best way to handle it instead of them finding out after the fact. Um, I would receive mixed responses to that. Um, sometimes they would, you know, the interview would end quickly. Other times I was told, hey, everyone has a past. Everyone has this. A lot of time has passed since your felony. We believe that you are still, based on your resume, based on your education, a great fit for this job. It was at that point that I would be handed over to a human resources department who they weren't quite so open to the idea of having a felon work for them. And um, communication became sparse at best. Let me stop you there. I'm curious. So when they asked you or, or you decided to disclose your felony, what did you tell them? What, what was it that that caused you to be incarcerated? So... You know, in the in the early aughts, I was caught up. I would say I in a, in the cycle of addiction. Um, due to that addiction, um, I isolated myself from most of my support network and ended up doing a lot of unfortunate things in order to get money to you know feed that addiction. I stole, um, and I always like to say hey, I wasn't a real good criminal. I got caught almost immediately. Uh, didn't, didn't, have, didn't have that long of a, of a run, you know? Um, however, the criminal justice system, there are certain, you know, there's statutes. There are certain amounts of time that you, you have to face when you've, when you've broken the law. My, my original crimes were burglary and receiving stolen property. And for that, I was sentenced to nine years and 11 months in the state correction facility. And so is this how you would explain it to these prospective employers, just um, open and honest about, I made a mistake, I served my time. Um, did you add anything to it? Did you embellish? No, I, I try to keep it concise. I say, look, I have a history, as, as many people do. I made mistakes in my past. Um, I'm ashamed of them, but I cannot change the fact that they're in my past. I say that that was over a decade ago. I'm a completely different person today than I was then. And especially in the field of social work that I've tried to go into, um, I believe that it is those experiences that I have that actually make me relatable to the community that I'll serve because I've been in their shoes and I've come out, I like to believe on the other side, a changed and better person, which means that it is possible for anyone because you could have asked around and I was a lost cause. I probably would have told you myself that I was a lost cause 15 years ago. Let me get this straight. Every The jobs for which you were applying were all in the social work field. Um, so I applied for jobs in mostly in the social work field, 
I applied for jobs in the housing justice industry. I applied for jobs in job readiness. I've applied for yeah, pretty much. That's 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 the field that I that's the field that I'm educated in. That's the field that I'm credentialed in. And so that's the field that it would make sense for me to try to go work in. Um you know, it's interesting. I see a profound irony in the situation. You're applying to work in the field of social work where everybody is broken in some degree, financial, emotional, drug dependency. I mean, those are their people. And yet they look at you and say, well, you're not suitable for this parenthetically because you've been in prison, but you're one of their people in a sense, you would think. You know, it's a, it's quite a paradox because these are companies who have an ethos of change and all things are possible through working the steps, hard work, um, those those kind of mantras, except when it comes for the people that work there. And those people need to have a squeaky clean background and not have gone through the same things that their client base are supposed to be overcoming. How many jobs uh, did you apply for and were outright rejected? You know, I lost count along the way, but it's in the double digits and um, far removed from 10. We're, you know, we're talking 20 to 30 jobs. Where are you today in all of this? Did you finally land a position? Are you? I know you're crusading for people that are uh, similar situated. Um, what are you doing these days? So right now, I found that um, this is a field that means a lot to me. So my workaround currently was to start my own nonprofit in the harm reduction field. And... I'm able to get a slight bit of funding. I'm able to make a meager minimum wage salary off of this. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm able to make some change in people's lives. I'm able to get harm reduction tools in the hands of those who need it. Um, and I hope to grow that nonprofit while I wait for my my statutes of time to expire and my credentialing to be recognized by the state. I'm not sure I follow when you say my statutes of time. So the state of Ohio has certain policies in which regardless of the fact that I'm graduating with honor cords, um, I still have to wait a certain amount of time before I can get my credentials recognized by the state board. Um, I also need to get what's referred to as a certification of qualification for employment, um, short CQE, um, that will basically guarantee to an employer that I am a low risk now. I've read about the CQE. That's a process for which you apply through the court system, right? Well, yes and no. Okay. 
So it starts by going back to ODRC, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, which I spent quite a few years with already. Um, and so I have to have satisfied the length of time that I was monitored post-release. Um, once I've satisfied that, the typical waiting period is one must wait one year and with good behavior, then apply with the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. If they approve your filing, you can then take that and file once again with the Court of Common Pleas in the county that you reside. This is a multi-month process. I refer back to the length of time that I have to wait while I'm on community control post-release because the average length of time that one is given is three to five years. So one has to wait three to five years, then an extra year followed by the multi-month process in which a CQE is not guaranteed at the end of that yellow brick road. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's Somebody must have had a good reason, but it sounds a little absurd. So if you're on post-release control for five years, you have to wait five years to even apply for the CQE. Six. Six. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> and and this isn't an expungement of those crimes. It's uh, it's it's doing what? It allows an employer to have some comfort level and somebody else's say so that you're now a good person. Yeah, that's that's um, that's the interesting thing about it is that although I, you know, in 2012, I was sentenced to a determined amount of time in which I was told at the end my debt to society would be cleared. However, I'm now finding out that I must go back to the courts post-release and ask for a certification that doesn't quite say that my debt has been cleared. It just says that I'm a lower risk now than your other average felon who does not have this qualification. And I think what it does, to the extent it is helpful, it, it removes some of the barriers that exist for you getting various licenses, right? Yes. And so... Um, because, you know, if you took a look, Gonzo, I think there are thousands of jobs types of jobs in Ohio that require a license. So without that CQE, I don't know how you how you can get a license. So uh, are we presuming then that if you need a license, you're usually disqualified due to a felony in your past and, and you can't get the license because that's always going to be there? It depends on the licensing requirement for each profession, but I think that's somewhat typical to have a felony as a barrier. It's more common than it's not. Okay. And so the the pathways to a degree that are offered within a prison, um, they're, they're kind of narrow. Social work is one of the most widely utilized. Also, business is another. Um, these are both areas where, you know, with those, it's hard to... It's hard to, with a business degree, it's hard to go into a front office, you know, with, with a felony on your background. They want to see your credentialing. Um, they want to see 
that you have your business degree. However, once they see that that felony exists, I the odds it. the odds that you're getting in are become extremely slim. I we, think I think it also provides. I think I read this that it provides some degree of immunity for liability for employers who hire an ex-offender who are concerned about whatever liability may accrue because the ex-offender does something inappropriate in the work site. I think it does that. And if so, I'd be willing to bet the statistics show that former offenders are not really a likely source of crime in the workplace to begin with. Well, no, ex-offenders, and I know a vast network of them, mm -hmm. they're grateful to have a position. Mm -hmm. They're looking. Everyone leaves those prison walls wanting to do right. They want to show their family the turnaround they've made. They want to prove to themselves the turnaround that they've made, their community, their children, whatever the case may be. Beyond that, People don't go get an education as a long play into a, a heist on a company. That's just not what people do. We went, to, we went to college, we educated ourselves because we believed that it would give us a little mobility upward. And finding out that we're still kind of put into this box even after that is disheartening to say the least. Your um, convictions dealt with crimes that I think um, employers have some legitimate concern because you want to be with clients, right? You're gonna have direct client contact in the field of social work. How did you, I don't know, persuade employers that you're really not a risk to harm their clients or to steal from their clients or to do something to their clients, which obviously affects the whole business if you did. Well, I haven't had a problem in persuading the people who I would actually work with, the people who are hands-on in the field of social work. They relate with my story. They know that my story resonates with the community that I would serve. They also know they can see the passion that I have for helping people. My goal has always been, and I thought about this, I had many years to think about it, was if there is a way for me to potentially prevent someone from going through the hardships that I had to go through, it's my obligation to society to do that. It's my obligation to them to do that. I want nothing from them except to see them at their best. And I tell that exact same thing to a prospective employer. And I think that when they hear it, they know that I am right within the line of what they want to accomplish. The problem is, is that even these employers are handicapped by policies that, that are in place that prevent them even... I was actually sat down by one major Columbus nonprofit, um, and the woman that I spoke to in Human Resources said, listen, William, you would be getting hired today. Everyone that spoke to you loves you. The problem is 
is you're not allowed to get a Medicaid billing number currently. And because I could not, due to my felony, bill Medicaid, which is where they receive a large portion of their funding, they could not offer me the position. They knew I would help the client. They knew that I was there to serve the client. They were just, they had their hands tied by this policy. I have a um, close friend of mine. Um, he passed away last year, William, and he um, he was an alcoholic, went divorce, lost his job, health was terrible. So he goes into a program finally. At the end of the 12 weeks, they wanted him to come back and talk to other people because he had all the street credibility now. He had been through it all, and he had this great personality that they felt could really change people around. And it helped him so much to be able to do that. And, and I believe what you're saying, that if you're in a position with people to say, look, I made these mistakes, and here's where you're going if you don't change, um, coming from somebody that it, it makes it real, and it makes it, um, it seems to me, just gives it a lot of credibility. No question about it. And again, I think the the problem stems from the fact that the ex-offender population of America is just one that doesn't get much time or attention. It's easy, if not politically expedient, to say that you're tough on crime and to want nothing to do with criminals. Criminals, or I shouldn't say criminals, ex-offenders don't have a lobbying group. Thinking about the uh, politicians, though, what, uh, if anything, have you done to approach our uh, representatives, our uh, statewide officials? Has that been a part of your uh, quest to, uh, to help or change the way things are? Absolutely. And um, the program that uh, our current gubernatorial re uh, administration has in place has reached out to me. Um, I spoke at length with Amy Shadwick at Recovery Ohio about these very topics. Um, Let me stop you for a second. What was it that propelled her to call you? Uh, it was the article that I got published, uh, my, my guest column that was published in the Columbus Dispatch. Okay. And yeah, she, I believe that my, my article, which I wrote um, kind of detailing my frustrations, a little bit of my angst, um, and my questions moving forward, um, I guess it raised some eyebrows within their office. And their office has put several programs in place that do make a path forward possible, whereas five, ten years ago, that path was an impossibility. Um, it still has not changed the fact that one must wait these extended periods of time in order to get their credentialing. Now, the governor's office is very open to change. They just seem to be deciding what that change is going to look like instead of actually getting the feedback and getting the opinions of the people who it would serve the most. They have some very good programs in place. Like I've said, those programs are also not widely known about. And, you know, that comes from a multitude of reasons. When they first rolled it out uh, was roughly two months before our first 
confirmed case of COVID in Columbus, and you know the focus went elsewhere. Um, the 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 convicted population, the uh, the prison population was put to the wayside. Um, still, there are people getting out of prison every day, and these people aren't equipped with the knowledge of even what they can do on the inside to begin their CQE. What they can do, there's something called a CAE, which is even more involved. However, you can check all of the boxes and leave prison with this certificate, but no one inside really finds out about it. It's, it's very hard to get that information to the inmates, and I don't know why. I can't speak on why that is, but it's just not widely known. So I took, while inside, I took nearly every program that was offered, any chance to better myself, any chance to educate myself, I jumped at it. The first time I heard the term CQE was when Amy Shadwick called me. And so, hey, am I working on it now? Yeah. And has her office put me in touch with Dr. Saul, the doctor of law up at Akron University, to work on my personal CQE? Yes, they have, and I'm eternally grateful. It's just this information is not even within the halfway houses, the returning citizens. It's not made available, so no one knows that these options are there for them or how to begin laying the groundwork to make it so they can accomplish these certifications. And so they feel relegated as most, as even I have felt at time, they feel relegated into the service industry, into the construction industry, into the industries that will accept them. And to be clear, where you don't need a license. Where you don't need a license, where you can go right in you may be breaking your back, but you're bringing a paycheck home. and So it seems like there's a real chasm between what the administration or the legislative body has tried to do in conveying that information to the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation because those are the folks that have to get the word out to the insiders. Or am I missing something? No, not at all. And I think all the good intentions in the world – don't create a re-entry program within the prison walls that informs and educates and maybe puts people on the mission to getting this done. Because a little motivation goes a long way. And if people, you get sentenced to a certain amount of time. Say you get sentenced to five years. What am I going to do during that five years? You get to Corrections Reception Center and you say, what am I going to do with this five years? If there is no options for betterment that are immediately put on your horizon, then you might lay around reading some books, watching some TV, you exercise a lot, but you're not working towards what happens after your release. Because... One truth of life is that five years will go by and you will be released and it's better to have someone prepared for it 
because, as I said earlier, they leave motivated, but they also need to leave equipped. I'd like to take a little left-hand turn here for a second. The insiders that I know are part of a program where they are given someone like me to help them with the transition. So there's a lot of hand-holding inside, through the gate to the outside, where you have somebody, we call them navigators, but think of it as a coach. When you got out of the walls, were you part of a program? Was anybody taking you by the hand and saying, hey, let me guide you, let me give you some coaching, or were you on your own? I was given $88 and a ride to Columbus. I, so tell me about that. I mean, how frightening is it when you step out the gate and you've got this world in front of you that you've been sequestered from for nine years? It's almost impossible to describe the emotion. You see so much. So much has changed. There are things that are the same, but you feel life coming at you at a million miles an hour. And there are so many different things that you've been in the habit of not having to worry about or not having to navigate on a daily basis that if you're not up to the task or if you do not have a support network, which is extremely hard to maintain a support network, especially after the kind of time I did, who do you have? Did you have a support network? I'm grateful that I had my mom who stuck by my side. Other than that, no. I had no support network. I went and sought out some of the social programs that I now want to work for. And they gave me a place to to vent and to relate with others who were going through the exact same problem, employment problems, housing problems, medical issues, those kind of those kind of things. And I had an I had an arena to relate with them, which helped me in my process, but that was about all the And our focus here has been employment, but housing is just as big a problem, isn't it? Housing is next to impossible for a felon to get. There are certain communities that say felons don't even apply. And you just don't even think about trying to go live in a certain community within the town that I grew up in. And that's unfortunate. And it becomes even harder when you start to tackle the issues of race and housing as well. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to be able to find a, a, a rental company that would offer me a lease. Of course, I had to pay a higher deposit due to my felony than anyone else that came through there, but they rented to me nonetheless. Short side story, I then told my network of other reformed and released fellows, hey, here's a place that will rent to you. It's a little bit steeper, but they will rent to you. My best friend, who happens to be a person of color, went and applied at that same complex and was denied. And that's an unfortunate reality. That's a, that's a double-edged sword. 
And I can only imagine, I mean, I saw a lot of what he went through, but I can only imagine how many have gone through the same thing. Jack, it strikes me, um, thinking about ODR, that uh, the programs that we've been learning about on our podcast are all privately Mm -hmm. run. Right. William, what's ODR's role? Once the door closes behind you, are they pretty much done with you, or are they facilitate any programs to help people so that you know you're not back visiting again they have halfway houses that people can go to Um, however that is considered part of your sentence so on the day that you're um, they call it an EDS the end of definite sentence on that day whether you have a place to go or not you are out the door. You are out, and you see anyone that's familiar with the Long and High location, um, Alvis's main location, Alvis House, the halfway house of choice in Columbus, their main location is right there at 40 West Long Street. The YMCA. Yes, the YMCA. And you can see, you can see the homeless out in front of there. And I know from being familiar with these guys that a percentage of them left the halfway house and and didn't make it far like other marginalized populations they are where they are because they're at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder and there's no one to represent them it takes power to make change in the state house nobody's there nobody is there pulling for the ex-offenders if it's any solace, I think uh, DeWine will probably be our governor for another four years. So maybe you can keep working on that office, William, and, and get them moving and, uh, and get this information into the hands of people that, that need to know it. But um, we appreciate you coming on, uh, getting your story out to the, uh, to the public. Um, and I'm sorry for what you've been through. Um, uh, I represent uh, people that are incarcerated, usually on their habeas uh, work. And uh, you're right, the support staff, especially if you've been in jail for 20, 30 years, a lot of your support staff has passed away. Parents, you know, brothers and sisters, and it's tough. So appreciate you coming on with us. Absolutely. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important legal or social justice issue. And we hope you join us so that it's not just us, but all of us seeking justice. We want to thank WOSU and Eric French, our sound engineer. If you like what you've heard, please pass our podcast along to a friend. If you like what you've heard, maybe you can post a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Until then, so long.